Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Monday, October 17th, 2022. And today will be better than yesterday. Working from the Sarah Abbott Studios somewhere in Bristol, Connecticut, is Sarah Abbott. Taylor Schwink is working from the Schwink Studios in the foothills of Connecticut. And I'm Buster Only working from my hotel room in Bristol. What a great weekend of baseball that we had it was so much fun. The crowds were the were so fun. Uh, we will work backwards in terms of what we saw over the recent days. Last night, Sunday night, the Yankees and Guardians played game four in Cleveland. And before that game, a lineup shakeup from Aaron Boone. He benched shortstop Isaiah Kiner-Falefa. He played his Waldo Cabrera at shortstop, his fifth career appearance in the big leagues at that position and he started Aaron Hicks in left field there was also a lot of complaining about Aaron Boone and how he used Clay Holmes as closer who kind of threw him under the bus with what he said uh, in response to that so a lot of pressure on the Yankees going into game four an elimination game for them they took a lead in the top of the first inning Here's the 0-1, and Rizzo lines one into center. That's a base hit. Three bounces out to Straw. Torres getting the wave. The throw through is just late as Torres slides in head first ahead of it, and Rizzo with an RBI single to give the Yankees an early 1-0 lead. That was Dan Schulman on ESPN Radio. Uh, remember the trade deadline when we talked through the whole deal of the Yankees getting Harrison Bader in return for Jordan Montgomery. The Yankees took a lot of flack for that trade, and we talked in the podcast about how internally their strategy was, you know what, we think Harrison Bader, as he recovers from this foot injury, is going to help us in the postseason. He certainly has. And the first pitch of this at-bat is hit hard, left center field. Quan giving chase, but no shot at it. It's well up into the seats. Yet another home run in the series for Harrison Bader. And this one is a two-run shot as the Yankees now lead 3 to nothing. In the bottom of the third inning, Garrett Cole walked the leadoff hitter, Austin Hedges, with a three-run lead. It led to a bit of a rally from the Guardians. And then this happened. Now the 0-2 on the way, and it is a breaking ball, another curve, and it's popped up. Shallow left field, and it drops! It somehow falls between the left fielder and the shortstop, and now Ramirez is out, trying to get back to first. Took too big of a turn, but his bloop to shallow left drops in, in between Cabrera, the shortstop, and Hicks, the left fielder, to bring a run in to score. Yeah, there was a 9% hit chance when that ball went in the air. It seemed like it was in the air forever. Jose Ramirez bails out the Yankees with that mistake on the bases. Bottom of the fourth inning, this happened. 2-2 again, and it is a fastball, and it's drilled. Right center field, and it's gone! And Josh Naylor is racing around the bases as this home run has brought the Guardians within a run. He was racing around the bases, gesturing directly at Garrett Cole, making some sort of a motion that kind of was indicated like, you're my baby, that sort of thing. Not quite sure how to describe it, Taylor. You got anything better than that? Uh, yeah, that uh, he, I guess, my baby, uh, I'm your father, I'm your daddy. Perhaps. Something like that. <laughs> 
Garrett yeah. Cole definitely gonna he definitely took it well. I'm you know that's what I was thinking when I was watching it. Well, I think somebody asked after the game will ask about that. We'll get to that in a moment. Garrett Cole continued. And the 0-1 on the way and a curveball grounded out to the shortstop Cabrera playing to the right of second in the shift. He makes a nice play on DeRizzo and Naylor and the Guardians go quickly and quietly. This was the top of the seventh. So two on the way and a swing and a miss. He got it. Blew him away with 98. And a great job here this inning by Garrett Cole. Now, one of the questions coming into the game was who exactly was going to close for the Yankees? Wandy Peralta had thrown 27 pitches in game three. Uh, the thought was he might be unavailable. We saw everything with the drama around Clay Holmes. They've had all these guys injured. Well, guess what? It was Wandy Peralta again on the mound for the Yankees in the ninth inning. As Jimenez swings and misses at the next pitch from Peralta, and the Yankees win it. In game five tonight, the deciding game five, Jamison Tyone of the Yankees will pitch against Aaron Savali for Cleveland. Here's Terry Francona being asked about Savali pitching tonight. I think he'll be just fine. I think he'll be just fine. I told him, I said, hey, man, you go pitch your heart out. I said, don't you worry about when we take you out. We'll just keep pitching until we take you out. He, he, he seems like he's in a good place. Here's Aaron Boone talking about Garrett Cole's performance in game four. His ability to mix, you know, he used everything again tonight. Um, I thought he was very much under control, um, you know, commanded his emotions well early on if he executed a pitch he didn't he he had some i think first three innings had the leadoff guy on base and and didn't really flinch um just kept making pitches all night long and and i thought was was just really in command of the moment and uh it was obviously a huge start for for us and for him and to get us that deep in the game set us up real nice here's boone talking about last night's closer wandy peralta you know, I, I had low going, uh, so I was only going to go three hitters there with Wandy, and didn't really want to get low in the game. And um, so, for him to just come in and just execute right from Jump Street was huge. Um, was there any doubt? I mean, this morning and coming to the ballpark, um, but you know, right away, um, you know, he said he was good and wanted the ball, so uh, I was going to go to him. You know, in a short spurt, but but you know, it had happened to line up there in the ninth for that lane that I wanted him in, and and he was he was terrific again. Yeah, man, I'm going to be having a conversation with Tim Kirkjian coming up about the circle of trust for both managers in tonight's game. Wani Peralta certainly in the circle of trust for Aaron Boone. The Yankees have two wins in this series, both from Garrett Cole, who was asked after the game about. Josh Naylor's gestures as he rounded the bases. Garrett, what did you make of uh, Naylor's celebration? <laughs> yeah. Whatever. It's cute. Yeah, I mean, so it seems like it did bother you a bit. I mean, I, I just was made aware of it. Like, I didn't see it in the moment, and it wouldn't have bothered me in the moment. And it just is kind of funny. So... He was asked if he was feeling any pressure. Preparing for this game, when he told me that I was going game four, like, you know, there's an opportunity to clinch or an opportunity to go home. I didn't approach the game any different. So um, I just went out there and did my job.
He's been great so far in this postseason. Hot Ticket is brought to you by Vivid Seats, where you earn rewards with every purchase. Vivid Seats Rewards is your ticket to more tickets. Vivid Seats, life happens live. Now, late on Saturday night, if you're on the East Coast, it was early Saturday morning, Padres and Dodgers playing. Crazy night there. It was rain. The game was affected by the weather. But you know what? What was not affected was the enthusiasm of the San Diego fans. In the face of that, Freddie Freeman gave the Dodgers an early lead. The 1-1. Swing and a chopper towards first. Fair ball down the right field line. That's going to score two. Betts is in. Turner on his heels. Freeman into second. He bounces a double inside the first base bag. And the Dodgers strike first. It is 2-0 L.A. as Freddie Freeman comes through. That's the unmistakable voice of the legend, Boog Shambi on ESPN Radio. The Dodgers had a 3-0 lead going into the bottom of the seventh inning. In half inning, the Padres fans will remember forever. Padres began to chip back with help from Austin Nola. Canley ready and fires. Swing and a ground ball. Off the glove of Freddie Freeman. Trickles out to second. Run comes in to score. It'll be an infield single. It ended up in the hands of Lux, but he had no play. And it's 3-1. The rally continued. It's the pitch. Swing and a ground ball. Fair ball. Inside the bag, down the third baseline. Grisham in to score. Racing for third is Nola. In to second is Kim. It's an RBI double, and it's a one-run game. 3-2 L.A. Juan Soto would follow. Everybody waving the gold rally towels. Here's a swing and a line drive and a base hit in the right field. In to score is Nola. Kim will stop at third. Juan Soto with an RBI single to right. And the Padres have come all the way back. It's 3-3. And there's still nobody out. Still nobody out, which gave an opportunity for Jake Cronenworth to come to the plate. The 2-2. Swing and a line drive. Base hit center field. Scores Kim. Here's Soto to the plate. He dives across. Cronenworth into second. Jake Cronenworth delivers. The Padres have come all the way back and they've taken the lead. 5 3 San Diego, bottom of the seventh. Here's what it sounded like in the top of the ninth inning. The 0 2. Swing and a miss. And it is over. The San Diego Padres have knocked off. Los Angeles Dodgers, and they're headed to the National League Championship Series. Here was Dave Roberts, the Dodgers manager, talking about the elimination of a team that won 111 games in the regular season. You know, each guy gave everything they had all year long and and, uh, a tremendous season. And, uh, you know, the great thing about baseball is uh, the unpredictability. And uh, the tough thing about it is the same thing. Um, things could have gone either way today to impact the result of the game. It didn't. And, uh, you know, we got beat in a series. Uh, so nothing I can say is going to make it feel any better. And um, obviously we didn't expect to be in this position. We talked a lot last week about how the Padre looked like they were playing with a lot of comfort, in particular Manny Machado. He was asked in the celebration how it feels to advance. Oh, man, this is awesome, man. I mean, 
is what we've been working for all year. Go out there and beat the best team in baseball. I mean, no better team to do it. He was asked about his reaction and feelings about the fans showing up. This was unbelievable, and we're bringing a championship back to San Diego, baby. That's what we worked about all year. That's what we talked about since I signed here, and we're bringing it back, and we're going to bring a World Series to the city as well. So, you know, come Tuesday, those fans are going to be out there. We're going to give them a show, baby. Yeah, it was a great weekend for Padres fans for sure. There was also a great weekend for Phillies fans. The Phillies playing the Atlanta Braves, a team that won 14 more games than Philadelphia during the regular season. They had the Braves on the edge of elimination going into game four. Brandon Marsh came to the plate with two runners on base. This ball hammered. Right field, deep. Acuna turns around, Brandon Marsh, a three-run home run off Charlie Morton and the Phillies lead it three to nothing. Then in the bottom of the third inning, JT Real Muto added to that lead. This one is driven to center field, fairly deep, going back. Harris still going back. He won't get it. It ricochets off the wall. Gets away from Harris. Real Muto to third. He's being waved in. JT Real Muto and inside the park. Home run. Yeah. And what happened on that play? Ronald Cooney Jr. did not move from his position to right in right field to back up that play. The ball ricocheted toward him. And so you had an inside-the-park home run there. The Phillies go on and win 8-3. Those calls uh, calls from Carl Ravitch on ESPN Radio. After the game, Brian Snitker, Braves manager, talked about the defeat. We ran into a really hot team, pretty much. I mean, they're hitting on all cylinders. They're playing great baseball. They got big hits. Um, They shut us down offensively. And... uh, you know, it's just, I think all the credit goes to the Phillies. I mean, they came in here, and like I say, they got hot at the right time and, and um, you know, played a heck of a series. Here's Dansby Swanson. Not winning in the end. Also, it in a way, it feels like failure, you know, and that's, I feel like, the hardest part uh, to come to terms with um, because it was so successful for so long, but we just didn't get things done when it mattered. And, um The Braves' biggest question in the offseason, really the only question going into 2023, will be whether or not they re-sign Dansby Swanson as shortstop. Bryce Harper played such a big role. He basically has done everything that the Phillies could have hoped for since he's joined the franchise. Here he was in the press conference after the game. I just think as an organization, right, we haven't been here for a long time um, and to be able to do this and <clears throat> do it with the group of guys that we have and, you know, kind of where we started and um, now where we're at. You know, I don't think any of us are shocked of, about where we are. Um, we're really excited about the opportunity ahead for us and um, we've taken every opportunity and tried to, you know, go with that. And um, we're just all excited as a club and a group um, that we can go out to, you know, the West Coast and play um, wherever we do. So the Phillies, uh, moving forward, of course, we're going to take on the Padres. Uh, Phillies reliever David Robertson, by the way, is hopeful to return from a calf injury in time for the National League Championship Series. He was hurt celebrating Bryce Harper's home run against the Cardinals in Game 2 of the National League Wild Card Series. And, of course, the other game on Saturday, the Astros and the Mariners in Seattle. That fan base was going absolutely nuts this is what it sounded like after Matt Brash struck out Jose Altuve to end the top of the ninth. And the two-strike pitch. Swung on and 
Bell struck him out on three pitches. Altuve fans. And they're going to strand runners at second and third. They had two on with nobody out in the ninth inning, and they cannot break through. Dave O'Brien on ESPN Radio. But both teams kept putting up zeros with their pitching, with their hitting. In the top of the 16th inning, the Mariners kept the zeros going with help from Julio Rodriguez. Swing and a liner toward right center field. Toward the alley, long run, Rodriguez. He dives and he makes the play. He made the catch, tagging up Bregman. He'll go second and into third. Rodriguez made a spectacular catch way out there in right center field as he went down and caught the ball while diving and sliding and quickly got up and made the throw back to the infield. It was still 0-0, top of the 18th inning. Here's the 3-2. Swing and a high fly ball center field, driving back Rodriguez, racing back, racing back, looking up. That ball's gone! Jeremy Pena blasting one out of here for Houston. And here in the 18th inning, we finally have a run in the ball game. And here's what it sounded like in the bottom of the 18th. The crowd on their feet. They have rarely sat down all day and into the night. Here in Seattle, the pitch. Swing and a fly ball in center field. Gabbana's there, and he will make the catch. And the Houston Astros in 18 epic innings win it one to nothing. They sweep their way back to the ALCS for the sixth consecutive time. Here's Scott Service, Mariners manager after that game. We're accustomed to playing those tight games and finding a way, but, you know, there was no errors made in that game today. I mean, that is a big, that's a big league game with the pitching and the defense that was fired out there. We just weren't able to, to put anything together. You've got to give the other team a lot of credit. They pitched great. They played a good series. They beat us. Um, in my mind, and I think our players' mind, is you know, a break here or there goes our way in this series. Could have been a lot different. But end of the day, they got the big hits in each of the games, and, and they end up winning them. Here's Astros shortstop Jeremy Pena. I guess, Jeremy, can you just describe that, that moment and, and what you were looking for in that situation? I mean, that was a long game. And that was a long game, but you still got to lock in, you know, try to put together good at-bats. And, uh, yeah, I was just trying to stay inside the baseball. Thought I drove it in the gap, but it just happened to leave the ball field. Yeah, quite a scene in Seattle and over the weekend on Saturday in all those venues, Taylor. Oh, my gosh. It was pure insanity. I'm very excited to see this atmosphere in San Diego and in when it goes back to Philadelphia. Excited for game five tonight. So much going on, man. So much going on. Uh, real quick, before we move on to our esteemed guests, uh, check out the Dominique Foxworth show. A new podcast twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays. Great addition to our roster. You see Dominique all over TV. He is on with Bomani Jones on Foxworth Fridays. And now you can listen to him on his own podcast. Uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast right now, or you can watch it on YouTube. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Buster. Just go to Indeed.com slash Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11 ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with Code Baseball. That's Code Baseball. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. This is the Numbers Game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, reporter, producer for MLB.com. She, like the rest of us, uh, has a glow today after that. Uh, those all in- incredible games over the course of the weekend. So, Sarah, you ready for an impossible question? Oh, my gosh. Hit me with it. What you got? All right. And so, and what's great about this question is there are no real numbers attached. It's all going to be emotion for you, okay? I want you to rank the quality of the crowds in Philadelphia, San Diego, and Seattle. One, two, and three. Give us your rankings on what you saw. I think San Diego is one because you had Southern Californians getting poured on for about two innings, not going anywhere, and it just felt like an absolute party and the way they came alive when they had that comeback late in the game in the seventh inning. I, oh my gosh. I mean, it's impossible. It's so impossible. I was going to say Philly because it's basically like a club the entire game. But then you have Seattle where I think the people were on their feet for six hours and 22 minutes, which seems unhealthy and really, really cool. So maybe Seattle is too. And then Philly, but that's no disrespect to Philly. I mean, just absolutely insane. And by the way, then you've Cleveland and you've grown adults in SpongeBob outfits for Oscar Gonzalez, expecting that he would have another crazy hit. And he did hear that walk off on Saturday. I mean, the entire atmosphere of baseball on Saturday was amazing. I know there were a lot of sports going on on Saturday, but that was one of the best overall days we have had of this sport in a really long time. Just so much energy. Yeah, and you know, I was thinking of that, this question, and sort of, you know, the fun idea of trying to rank this, is that I think, and you know, if I would have put Philadelphia third too, and I'm I'm with you, and I was trying to figure out why I would do that, and I think part of it is, is that uh, there's such a unique energy in San Diego. There's a unique energy in Seattle, where on the other hand, 
the Philadelphia energy is something we've seen. And I remember first feeling and noticing it in the mid eighties when I'd watch games between the Celtics and the Lakers where the Boston Celtics crowd, there was this tension and the ball's being dribbled up the floor and you hear them grumbling. And there was a depth to the cheers, which I think we hear every postseason whenever there's one of these teams in the Northeast, Boston, you know, Fenway Park, Yankee Stadium, Mets fans, and Philly fans. Like those four cities, I feel like there's a, a sound that's fairly common among those four teams. Does that make sense? Yeah, I agree. And there's something about, I mean, you know, you think about droughts. You think about the fact that yes. even though the Phillies had the second longest postseason drought entering this year, they won World Series not that long ago. And then you think of a team where the owner, Peter Seidler, came on Sunday at baseball and referred to the team that they just took down, the Dodgers, as that dragon up north. I mean, that is a different kind of energy. And, of course, you have the Mariners, who basically made up for 21 years of not being in the playoffs in one game. The only thing the fans didn't get to see is a run sport, so hopefully they get that next year. But, again, that's no disrespect to the Philly fan base, which I know is, you know, prone to fight back. And I'm not saying any disrespect at all, but, you know, it's almost a compliment. They have been here as opposed to these other two teams that and fan bases that have not been here in this situation in a really long time. Yeah, I was texting back and forth with Peter Seidler over the weekend about how this must be a dream come true for him. Uh, you love the fact that he, as, is, as, in, as owner of the Padres, he's trying to win. So he yeah. paid in a way that you know previous ownerships didn't, uh, and and guess what? All everything that was out there this weekend after their investment in uh, the trade for Juan Soto and Josh Hader and the money they spent in Manny Machado, uh, they had a fan base that really enjoyed that, and that was really fun. All right, let's play the numbers game. Number three. Number three is six. So we'll start with the Padres since we were just discussing them. So they lost all six regular season series to the Dodgers and then defeated them in the playoffs. So they became the fourth team to lose every regular season series to a team and then defeat that team in the playoffs with at least four series. The others were the Twins over the Blue Jays in the 1991 ALCS, the Dodgers, of course, over the Mets in the 88 NLCS, and the Phillies over the Dodgers in the 83 NLCS. But all of those teams only played four series in the regular season. The fact that they played them six different times, lost all of those series, and then came and won when it mattered most. I mean, it was just incredible. And, of course, they won 22 fewer regular season games than the Dodgers. That is the second largest regular season wins upset in a postseason series. The only other one none of us remember in the moment because we weren't there was the 1906 World Series when the White Sox upset the 116 win Cups. Number two. Number two is 18. So, of course, we had 18 innings in Seattle on Saturday. Just an incredible scene across the board. And it was the fourth 18-inning game in postseason history. 
what I love about it is that, of course, these games come to be defined by the person who did the thing and ended the game in some way. So we had 2018, the Max Muncie game, when he had that walk-off home run. Of course, people also think of Nathan Valdi. Even though he gave up that home run, I think he gets a lot of credit for that game. Then we have in 2014, the Brandon Belt game. He had a go-ahead home run like Jeremy Pena did. And then we have the 2005 MLDS, the Chris Burke game, 18th inning walk-off. And I love the fact that there have been two 18-inning clinchers in postseason history, and both were by the Astros. It's just one of these weird oddities, of course, with Pena and then with Chris Burke in 2005. Number one. Number one is 61. So that's how many wins home teams have in winner-take-all games. Home teams are 61 and 63 all-time in winner-take-all postseason games. We're excluding any neutral site games from 2020. I love this stat. I trot out every time we get one of these because I think you really expect that home team to have a significant advantage, and that is not what we've seen. Of course, we had won so far this postseason game three with uh, the Sunday baseball crew with Mets and Padres, and the road team won, so we'll see. But I just think this is one of those really surprising numbers, so I love it. So one of the managers in tonight's winner-take-all game is Aaron Boone, who worked with you for a few years on uh, uh, baseball tonight on Sunday Night Baseball. Here's Aaron Boone. One of my favorite qualities about a person is when they love what they do. And when you're around Sarah Langs, it is apparent that she loves the game of baseball. And then when you combine intelligence around a passion, that's a powerful combination. And you always felt that when you got to work with Sarah Langs. Yeah, so Sarah, tonight, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to ask him about this coming up. I feel like Booney's circle of trust with his pitching staff is so interesting because unlike Terry Francona, who's basically going to roll out his best relievers that he's used all year, it feels like Aaron Boone might have some combination of Nestor Cortez and Wandy Peralta for another game, uh, and maybe somebody else. Who do you think's in that circle of trust tonight for Booney? I do think Nestor is very likely there. It's interesting because I don't know if the starter is really there. After we saw what Jamison Tyon did, of course, an atypical role for him out of the bullpen earlier in the series. I wonder how quick that hook may be. But it does appear that they are really trusting in Wandy Peralta, which is fascinating if you think about his career track. All of yeah. that, I, my mother texting me the other day saying, is that the same Wandy Peralta who was on the Giants a couple of years ago? And the answer is yes. And so it certainly seems to be him. We'll see if we see Clay Holmes on back-to-back days. I know that was a point of contention and conversation over the weekend. But it's very interesting to see how the management of pitching has been. And it almost felt yesterday that Terry Francona was managing for today. And we'll see how that works out for him in terms of 
not going to class A, not going to step on, not going to Karen Chat. So if that ends up helping him, that's why he's a Hall of Fame manager. And if it doesn't, he's still a Hall of Fame manager, but that's you know, comes back to what you were talking about with your quote with Bruce Bochy, are you an idiot today or not? In terms <laughs> of how these guys have to manage bullpens in October. I mean, it is so stressful. Exactly. All right, Sarah, thank you for doing this. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks so much for having me. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority especially against nasty parasites. That's why you gotta check out NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one and done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. Seam heads rejoice. This is Timmy time. Baseball is the greatest game. With Tim Kirkshen. It never disappoints you. On Baseball Tonight. Tim Kirkshen, who, of course, covers baseball for ESPN. Uh, Tim, how are you doing? After I'm a well, Buster. How much fun was that? It was great. I uh, did the radio with Carl Ravitch. It was so much fun. That Philadelphia crowd was ridiculously good, especially in game three. And it was it was really good, interesting baseball that we saw first in the Toronto Seattle series and then in Atlanta, Philadelphia. What a, what a great game this is, Buster, that we are all slapping our foreheads wondering what happened. <laughs> and it, it was just at the end of uh, especially at the end of the games on Saturday, you're like catching your breath because it was just so much to see, uh, as you mentioned, the great uh, the great crowds. So I'm going to throw an impossible question at you that was inspired by our bleacher tweeter, uh, Nick Tanza, uh, who is at the real Nick or the real Tanza. What I want you to do is rank these three things uh, in order of probability. Okay, the Phillies ascension to the National League Championship Series, the Padres ascension to the National League Championship Series or the Mariners and Astros playing 17 scoreless innings in the American League Championship Series. What say you? Those three, rank them in order in probability. We'll go with number one. Okay, well, number one is Seattle against Houston because that's never happened in postseason history that two teams have been scoreless for 17 innings. We've had teams like the Padres come from, you know, where they were. We've had teams like the Phillies come from where they were, make the playoffs, even win the World Series. But we've never had 17 scoreless innings to start 
a postseason game. That was breathtaking on so many different levels. So I just have to go with history on this. It's never happened, so it has to be first. So tell me how you were, because, of course, you did the Braves and Phillies on radio in the afternoon, and then tell me how you were watching uh, the Mariners and Astros and, and then trying to balance that against what was going on at San Diego. Well, I drove home as soon as my game was over. So it's a two and a half hour drive. So I listened to every pitch of the Mariners Phillies game. And of course, no runs were scored. And I keep thinking, please let me, let me be able to watch this. Please hang on till I get home. And of course they did. And then when I got home, the game was still going on, of course. And it, and it even went into the Yankee game and it went into the Dodger game. Uh, it was fantastic i fortunately i only have one tv in one i don't have a double tv room at my house so i had to move some stuff around but uh i got to see what i needed to see i got to see jeremy pena's home run it was an amazing day and then of course we followed that with the, the guardians three in the ninth then we followed that with uh with the padres and i stayed up till two o'clock in the morning i covered a game at you know four o'clock that at two o'clock that afternoon and was still up at two o'clock in the morning watching baseball it was glorious before we get back to the ranking i want to throw the question at you that uh, they threw at me on sports center baseball tonight last night uh, as we move forward now with the mariners where does this franchise stand after getting into the you know, getting into the, the uh, division series and being eliminated by the Astros. Well, I was really impressed with what I saw from the Mariners in my covering the division. I mean, the wild card series that, you know, George Kirby is a really good young pitcher. Who's only going to get better from here. Uh, Cal Raleigh's a really good player. They have a great defensive team. Julio Rodriguez is only going to get better from here, which is really saying something. Jared Kelnick looked like he's starting to, to figure some things out. They've got Luis Castillo signed long-term. I really like where the where the Mariners are, they're they're not going to be as good as the as the uh, Astros for several more years because of that Astros pitching, and they're going to have to find a way to score a few more runs or at least get a few more hits. As I told you, Buster, they hit two thirty this season in 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 a regular season, a full season. The only other team to hit two thirty and make the playoffs was nineteen oh six White Sox, who hit two thirty, hit seven homers the whole season and made the playoffs and then stunned the Cubs to win the World Series. It was That's what the Mariners have to do is find a way to get a few more hits next year on top of all the other things they do really well. I think the Mariners are uh, now where the Astros were in 2015, where you're right on the cusp of a long run where we're going to see the Mariners in the postseason a lot. Uh, and a lot of that, of course, is built around uh, Julio Rodriguez and how great he is and how great he's going to be going forward. Okay. Hey, what was more improbable, the Phillies' ascension to the NLCS or the Padres' ascension to the NLCS? Um, boy, that's a, that's an absolute tie. I'm going to go with the Phillies because they won 87 games. They finished 14 games behind two other teams in their division. It's never happened before that two teams won 100 games in a division. And the third place team in the division advanced past them into the league championship series. So I love what I saw from the Phillies. I'm not suggesting in any way they didn't deserve this because they did. Um, and the Padres story is fantastic. But I'm going to say the Phillies 
beating the Braves, who were the defending world champions and lost to them by 14 games this year. I would put that second very, very close second over third, which, of course, Buster, the, the Padres finished 22 games behind the Dodgers. The, the, the Padres got clobbered in the regular season by the Dodgers. The Dodgers have a better team, but the Padres played better when it really mattered. And, and I don't want to hear anybody talk about days off and everything else. Everybody knew the rules coming in. I'm not suggesting it's easy to play a daily game and then take that much time off and get it back. I understand. But the bottom line is the Padres outplayed the Dodgers and the Phillies outplayed the Braves. That's for sure. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Uh, I I would say I find the the Phillies climb more improbable because, you know, when you and I talked last Monday, we talked about how there was this feeling around the Padres team, which was echoed by Alec Cora, you know, who saw the same thing when he was at City Field. It felt like that there was a real comfort level there uh, and they were starting to play well uh, and on the other hand, so the fact that they upset the Dodgers wasn't a total shock to me. The idea that the Phillies could beat the Braves, that was a shock to me, Tim. Like, I, I did not see that coming because the Braves seemed to be hitting on all cylinders, but they had one major crack in what was going on with them, and that was at the back end of their rotation. Right, and and, and it showed. And the two major cracks, which supposedly the Phillies had, their bullpen – really didn't show up in this series. That bullpen was good. 12 strikeouts in game four of that series from the bullpen. I mean, they had some hard-throwing, big strikeout arms coming out of that bullpen. And the other thing is their defense, which we all know at one point this year was not very good. And at times, even in this series, they made some simple mistakes. But in the end, their defense showed up. Bryson Stott, by the way, Buster, is a really good young player. He's got a really good idea what he's doing. And Add all that in to the Phillies were away from home for 17 days. They ended the regular season on the road, then went to St. Louis, then went to Atlanta, 17 straight days. Bryson Stott told me, he said, all the clothes that I have, I took with me on the road trip. I don't have any more clothes. So everything that was in my house slash apartment went into my suitcase and I took it on the road. There was nothing left at home when I got there because I took it all with me. So what do we say now about the Dodgers, who won 111 games in the regular season? Because last night, you know, as we were talking about what happened with L.A., I was beginning to feel like that, you know, we're entering that territory now where the Dodgers are inevitably going to be compared with the Atlanta Braves teams of the 90s that won division uh, title after division title. They were constantly in the playoffs, and they won one World Series. Is that fair at this point? Yeah, we're getting close to that. I mean, the Braves won 14 division titles in a row. The last 10 years for the Dodgers has been indescribably good. And to only win one World Series in a 10-year period just doesn't follow with the talent that they have. So anyone, you know, we talked about, is this a dynasty? Well, they had to win the World Series this year to really be called dynasty. But you win this many games and play this well for 10 years and only win once, that is weird. And I think in the end, Buster, it came down to, we questioned their bullpen going into the postseason and the bullpen showed up as not a strong point on their team. I know it was during the regular season, but with some guys left off the roster, and uh, it just didn't work against the Padres, who threw up a five spot against that pen and ended up winning that series. 
I think the one thing that, you know, reminded of every year, I do believe that the teams that rely on a, a wider range of pitchers and rely on that, you know, that chain of relievers where the ball's handed from one pitcher to another, there inevitably is a weak link in that sort of strategy. I, I you know, was, uh, I was getting, you know, texts from folks with other teams who were noting that, that it's really difficult to carry that off in these high-pressure games. You buy that? Yeah, I, I do. And it just seems from a distance that the Dodgers in recent years have kind of veered away from what made them so good in the regular season and, and adopted a slightly different philosophy during the postseason, whether it's playing or not playing Joey Gallo or the way they use their bullpen or only let Urias throw 79 pitches in game one. I'm not suggesting any of these were the difference makers. It just, I always think if you win 111 games, you should follow basically the exact same formula that you did in the regular season because that should carry you in the postseason. All right, give me a quick answer to this question. Who's the shortstop of the Atlanta Braves next season? Dansby Swanson is going to be the shortstop, and that's the only quick answer I have, because, and I'm not certain of that by any means, but I got a good look at him again. And that guy's great. He's a great defender. He's the leader of that team. And even though he didn't have a big offensive series, I have trouble seeing them moving forward without him. That's how important he is to them. But with all these free agents out there and all these big market teams that uh, need a shortstop, uh, Dansby's going to get even more from the Braves uh, if he stays. And I think he's going to stay, but note my hesitation. Give me 45 seconds on this. Which team represents a greater threat to the Astros, the Yankees or the Guardians? Um, I'm going to say it's still the Yankees because even though pitching and defense win in the postseason and the Guardians can do both, I still think – there's that whole rivalry factor. I think the Yankees with Garrett Cole and the rest of that starting pitching can match up basically with the starting pitching, at least, of the Astros or at least come close. And I just think the judge and power factor is something that the Guardians don't have. So it's close. I I can see the Guardians giving a hard time to anyone at this time of year, but I'll take the Yankees. I can't wait for the game tonight uh, because, and we won't get too deeply into it because by the time uh, some people listen to this, the game may be underway or it might be over. Uh, um, but I'm fascinated by this game five because of the respective circle of trust that each manager seemed to have with the pitchers they could use tonight. On one hand, Terry Francona has all of his key relievers rested for the last two days, like all the big guys. So Aaron Savali, if he runs into trouble, I think at that point, Terry Francona will rely on guys he's relied on the whole year, maybe a little bit longer. You know, maybe uh, those back those uh, guys at the back end of his bullpen will account for five innings tonight. Uh, but on the other hand, with Aaron Boone, it's a very – it feels like a very different circle of trust. You know, he's going to start Jamison Tyone, and I'm sure that uh, uh, the Matt Blake, the Yankees pitching coach, is going to have his hand on the bullpen phone as soon as the game starts. If there's any issue with Tyone – uh, but the circle of trust for Aaron Boone, I feel like tonight, will involve Wandy Peralta, who, as you know, Yankee staff look at this guy as being the most fearless pitcher, afraid of nothing. Forget the fact that he's pitched the last few days. They're not going to worry about that. He's going to pitch tonight. Uh, Jonathan Lewise, because look better, is going to pitch tonight. Uh, and I also think Nestor Cortez, Tim, has a chance to play a major role in this game just because of how much trust they have in him. What do you think? 
Yeah, well, Nestor Cortez, speaking of fearless, you could put him in, I believe, in any spot. You know, he started all year. Let's put him in the bullpen. It would work tonight with him because he simply doesn't care. You you turn your back literally on a hitter once in a while and do some of the gyrations he does. That's a confident kid, and I wouldn't be surprised if we saw him tonight. And I'm with you on this bullpen, but I think they're going to tell Jamison Tyone, we know this is a winner-take-all game, but we're going to need you to go as deep as you can. We're not going to wow. risk it, but I think they have to tell him, look, we've got bullpen options, but we need you just like we needed Garrett Cole to go as long as you can go. So sure, Matt Blake is going to be ready to call the bullpen, but I think Jamison Tyone's going to go out there knowing I got to do at least as far as volume goes, something close to what Garrett Cole did last night. Yeah. And I think they would love for that to happen. The one thing that's, and I remember a conversation I had with John Smoltz 15 years ago, and he talked about in the postseason, it's the guys who miss bats who ascend. And I feel like as this game's starts, uh, you will see Aaron Boone manage um, aggressively in part because Tyone doesn't really miss bats, you know, 7.7 strikeouts per nine innings. So if the the Guardians start to, you know, put runners on base, uh, I don't think Booney will wait that long. I don't, but we'll, you know, we'll see how uh, it plays out. I wanted to ask you about some of the resistance that uh, Aaron Boone's kind of seems to be bumping into with some of his players. Um Clay Holmes made clear he disputed Boone's uh, public stance he wasn't available for Game 3. Luis Severino seems to question Booney's uh, decision about Holmes in Game 3. Then Booney shook up his lineup in Game 4 uh, after Isaiah Kiner-Falefa was benched. He told reporters that sitting on the bench stunk, uh, saying it is what it is, before adding that he's glad they got the win. So it feels like that there's a lot going on here for Aaron Boone, Tim. Well, it feels that way because it is that way. And when you have a your former closer who's still your closer when he's healthy, you know, questioning the manager and you, you bench your starting shortstop, even for one game to put a rookie in there who hadn't even played 30 major league games. That's unusual for a player to be playing in an elimination game at a position when he's only played 30 games there. But this is where... Aaron Boone has had to try some things because things just haven't gone particularly well since that 52 and 18 start. He's had to do an awful lot of stuff and he's continuing to juggle here just to get to the next round. And if they do get to the next round and face the Astros, you got to think there's going to be a lot more juggling going on for Aaron Boone. So he had better get used to it. Well, the one thing I'd say to, uh, you know, IKF is, or other players in that team, like Aaron Boone, if he's making a choice here, it's because he legitimately believes this gives his team the best chance to win based on what he's seen in the moment. You know Booney, Tim. Oh, absolutely. Look, Aaron Boone comes across as a really nice guy, which we all know that he is. But there is an inner competitiveness to him that he has no interest in, in not winning this series, and he's going to do whatever it takes. If he ruffles a few feathers deep down inside, I don't think he cares. No. I, I agree with you. All right, Tim, thanks for doing this. Uh, enjoy tonight. Enjoy this week. Uh, I know you're going to be on uh, baseball tonight. All right, Buster. Thank you. See you guys. Brian Flaherty is the quality control coach for the San Diego Padre now and someone I've known since he was a sophomore at Vanderbilt. Uh, he's already being mentioned as possible managerial candidate. In fact, I'd be surprised that if he's not at the help of some team within a couple of years. Flash, what was that like 
on Saturday night at Petco because from afar through television, it looked absolutely insane. Yeah, it was it was insane for sure, even in the dugout. Probably as loud and as a, the best atmosphere I've been in playing or coaching. It's interesting, I think, when I first came out here in 2019 uh, and met with AJ, I think he you know, shared this vision and and the ability to make this baseball city and coming from the East coast, you know, you kind of have your doubts coming out here that, you know, can this place, you know, produce that kind of atmosphere and to see it in full effect the other night was just, uh, it was special. What was the uh, motion on the field in the clubhouse after you guys beat the Dodgers? Yeah, you could see it. It was pure, you know, pure joy. Uh, you could see it on the players' face. I mean, the fans, you know, everyone involved with the team. It was a moment um, that we had been waiting on, and uh, you know, just to finally beat them, it was it was special. Tell me about Manny Machado, who you've known forever. Uh, what sort of evolution have you seen in him from the first time that uh, you played with him in the Orioles to now? Uh, when, uh, you know, he's leading the Padres uh, over the Dodgers and, this, and what was perceived around the sport as being a shocker. The most interesting thing with Manny, um, and I share this with all the players that we played together with in those Orioles teams, is, you know, the person he is now at 30 compared to 21. And I think that's, you know, that's the most interesting part of, I think, Manny's story um, outside of the production is who he is in the clubhouse and, you know, the leader that he's really become and, you know, Manny would be the first to admit it at a young Manny might not have always been that way. And I think now that the person he's turned into and, you know, the way these players rely on him for advice and leadership and really accountability too, from, from his own standpoint to the team, it's second to none in it. And it showed obviously this year throughout the whole year. All right. I want to ask you uh, maybe some of the questions that you, you would be asked in a, a managerial interview, which as I mentioned, I'm sure that you're going to get a couple of these. This is what happens when teams win. Uh, you know, teams looking to fill positions, look at those staffs and, and try to envision how somebody might fit. Um, you, you're, I'm sure, aware of the conversation that Joe Madden has spurred in recent weeks by talking about analytics, how he clearly wants to draw some lines. He was on the podcast here last week talking about that. Where do you fall uh, on uh, analytics and, and the question of whether or not some boundaries need to be drawn? I think the biggest thing, you know, someone says that word, no one truly really knows what it means and people, you know, hear it and someone who's a purist may say, oh, you know, what is that? And the biggest thing is, you know, making sure that there's probably communicated on exactly what's trying to be done. And I think that's probably the hardest thing where all this stuff gets lost. But, you know, we had a chance earlier this year to go to the Roberto Clemente Museum in Pittsburgh uh, there's a frame letter from Branch Rickey to Roberto Clemente in the 1950s talking about, you know, power percentiles and earned batting average and, you know, all these, you know, metrics that were, you know, back then were probably advanced in time. Um, so it's, it's, you know, nothing really new. But even then, in the follow-up letter that he sends, I think he explains what these metrics mean and why they're important and why they're correlated to certain stuff. So I think that's the important part of this thing is explaining to coaches and to and people, what what is it and what is trying to be done and why is trying to be done that way? And then you know, like all these good coaches or managers or whoever it may be, I think they can take into consideration that and then the ripple effect as well. If if uh, A, B, and C doesn't work out, where are you at when D comes around? And you know, all the great managers I think can account for that and and, and make sure they're prepared for that. What's the most effective way in your mind to communicate the information to players? 
I think just daily, you know, talking about it personally, you know, you, you, you know, when you get your computer with you, there's, there's questions that pop up daily and why these statistics matter. And I do think a lot of this stuff has been more empowering to coaches in a way to, to a player because there's so much more objective data. And, and I think, you know, you look at 10 years ago, the most objective data you have is probably a lasered 60 yard dash. And now there's, you know, swing percentages and, and in zone miss out zone, out zone swing and contact. And, and literally there's, there's everything you could ask for. And we're getting to a point that with Hawkeye data, you can really match up swing planes and pitch planes. So I think it's just the way it's communicated and each player wants that communicated differently. Um, and you have to really understand that and find which works best for each person. I had never really thought of it that way until you just mentioned it, that, yeah, you go into a conversation, for example, in, in 2008, I think Brian Cashman, before the data became really available to it, you know, he goes to Derek Jeter and he said, look, you know, we, we need to work on your defense and here's where your weakness is. And Derek, you know, uh, heard that uh, and responded to it being able to take the information like that backed up by objective uh, numbers really helps a coach. Yeah. Yeah. It can be totally empowering. And, you know, I don't think Manny, you know, wants to hear my subjective take on some times of what's going on, but if there's something objective there to say, Hey, look, you know, here's this, you know, that's, that's a lot easier to give to a player than, like I said, maybe something subjective or something that, Maybe I think that, but maybe someone else doesn't think that. And this is just showing, hey, look, here's where you're this at. is why it may lead to, you know, X, Y, and Z, and this is why it may lead to something else. All right. You've, uh, I think one of the reasons why people look at you is because you've, you've had uh, effectively apprenticeships under some of the, you know, the, the best managers in baseball, best coaches in baseball. When you were at Vanderbilt, Tim Corbin, you know, is someone who certainly has a lot of respect around the industry, in, in the industry. What did you learn from him? Yeah, I think, you know, the, you know, you look at all these teams and organizations and, you know, a lot of these modern concepts and practice design stuff that's trying to be done and, you know, player development. And now even in the big leagues, I think Corbs is probably at the forefront of doing these things. And a lot of these things you hear about or see, you know, he had us doing back in 2006. So maybe if not the best motivator that I've ever met in my life, and he can really just, you know, connect with all kinds of different people um, and different backgrounds. And, you know, really what he's built there is you could see it coming even in 06 and before that. And he had a vision for this thing and it's all hashtagged and, you know, Vandy boys, everything now, but he had a vision for this. And then right now they're, you know, in the, the golden era of it. What about Buck Showalter who you played for in Baltimore? Probably preparation comes to mind first and foremost. I think everyone, you know, spent time around Buck, you know, you know, knows that he'll convince you that, the hallway with doors, the reason why you're going to win or lose the game. And, you know, you can never really tell if he's joking or serious, but he's as prepared as anyone. He's always three innings ahead of what's going on. There's nothing that's not accounted for. I think you go back to the you know question you asked earlier. And I think Bucks accounted for all five of those things. And like I mentioned earlier, it's, I think he's also prepared for the ripple effect if A, B, and C don't go well, you know, where he's going to be at with D, which is the case of, you know, most of the managers I had the chance to play for and, and Bob, who I work with now. Terry Francona, what was the takeaway from that you got from him? I uh, take Tito, um, his relationship with those players, I think, you know, really special. I think, you know, they, he gets players to you know play hard for him. He's really a player's manager. 
you know, personally myself growing up in New England, I, you know, I always idolized Tito for what he did in Boston and he's really done it now for, you know, well over a decade. And, um, it's obviously special. Give me an example of something you saw a relationship with a player or, or some example of how he communicated. He's just a player's a player's coach. I don't know how to say that. I mean, I think the way he you know talks daily with players, he checks in with players daily. You know, much like Buck does or Bob or all these other guys. But he can relate to players really well. I think he's really good at that. And like he's got a great feel for what's going on in the clubhouse and why you know a certain player may be feeling a certain thing because he's not playing. And and he really understands that human element of of the clubhouse and you know, roster construction and why, you know, where a player's at mentally from, you know, a decision that maybe he made to play or not play a guy. And um, he's good at communicating that and, and, and showing affection towards the player for that. You know, you have uh, reminded me a lot uh, of Tito and that I feel like that humor is an important part of how you communicate with teammates uh, and, and I think that's what Tito does really well. What do you think? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He never takes himself um, too serious. He'll joke around with the players. And I think, you know, his ability, like I said, make fun of himself and tie that into making fun of a, a player in the team. And it's a, it's, a, it's a way to connect with people. And I think that's, you know, going back to the conversation we had earlier, it's, it's learning each individual person and what connects best with them. And, and, and Tito's obviously really good at that, um, if not maybe the best at it that I've seen. Bob Melvin, who you work for this year, what's your, been your takeaway working from it for him? He's just steady. You know, he's got the father, you know, father presence over in, in the dugout. Um, I know for these players themselves, he's brought in a, a, fa- a father figure, calm father figure. I think, you know, he's similar to Buck in a lot of ways. You know, the, I remember one spring training, I was sitting on the, on the, t- uh, the turtle with Buck. And I asked him one time, I said, hey, Buck, if you were a general manager, who's the first guy you'd hire? And, and he mentioned Bob's name. And in a preparation standpoint, I think those two are very similar for being prepared and accounting for four or five different things and making sure they're, they're, they're ready to go. And your dad, who is a storied, uh, storied coach, uh, tell me what you, your biggest takeaway from him as a coach. I, <laughs> well, it's weird, you know, I think he, he, my dad first, he's my father, and then he was also watching him coach, I think so. But those things have a lot of uh, overlap. And, you know, watching him and what he did with his program, he's been there now 39 years. And just, you know, going back to the basics of, you know, baseball. And I remember, you know, nighttime staying up late with him, watching, you know, Red Sox games and, you know, asking him why, why this happened, why that happened. And my dad never overcoach things with me or my brother. Um, I think he just really brought us around the game and then let us learn. Um, he was never someone who got too technical and didn't from a fundamental standpoint, you know, really just, you know, let us fall in love with the game and um, didn't want to get too technical with us. All right, Flash. I know later today you're getting ready for the Phillies. That'll be a lot of fun, huh? Yeah. Yeah. The Phillies in town, it should be good. Uh, it'll be fun watching you guys on TV. Yeah, no, um, we're excited for. It. I know, uh, I know the fans in, you know, San Diego are excited for this, and they they deserve this as much as any person in that clubhouse deserves it. So uh, it'll be exciting. All right, I appreciate you having me on. Bleacher tweets. 
Paul Righty Buster Bleacher tweets for a Monday. First up is Keenan Knights. Uh, Keenan Knights writes in is Robbie Ray, the first reigning Cy Young Award winner to finish two playoff games in a series without starting one. I'm sure he is, you know, unless John Smoltz did it. Uh, and I don't think they would have. Con- yeah, I- I'm sure he is. That that was a surprise. Ben Glavin is up next. Will the current Dodgers turn out to be the modern day 90s Braves? So many playoff runs, one ring. It's possible. That's what Tim Kirkjian and I were talking about. Saw you talking about it with uh, Jessica Mendoza last night on Baseball Tonight as well. Yep. Quality program. Rosh Ross Ishikawa writes in, I think the playoff format this year is great. It let the country meet all the upstarts first. Then when the big bad buy teams arrived, they were late to the party. I am sick of the big four and happy to see things getting stirred up. I love it, Ross. All right. There you go. Okay. No question. Just a comment. (laughs) Regina Wilson at Margarita Noir writes in with the Phillies and Padres wins. We're about to see a NOLA versus NOLA NLCS. Have there been other times in baseball history where brothers played against each other in such a high stakes series? I've got to dig into that question. Nothing comes to mind. I'd say this, like nothing right off the top of my head. I think, you know, Joe and Phil Necro at some point, but not like this, not in a National League Championship Series. Thomas Noel at TH Noel writes in, what do you think the Braves were missing this season that prevented them from repeating as champs? My two cents, Freddie Freeman. I don't know about that. No, starting pitching. Uh, You know, Spencer Strider hurt at the end of the season, really hurt. And I did not think, uh, you know, Charlie Morton um, was, it it felt like that this was a bad matchup for him because the Phillies had seen him so often and his stuff is not as great as it used to be. That makes sense to me. Last Bleacher tweet, and we lest we forget our friends at Dr. Pepper because Bleacher tweets are brought to you by Dr. Pepper. It ain't college football season without the delicious taste of an ice cold Dr. Pepper. The one fans deserve. JC at JCiv Fishing writes in. Any chance St. Louis goes after Swanson in free agency? St. Louis needs another bat and a shortstop. I don't think so. Uh, I don't think they're necessarily going to spend big money on that. And uh, you know, I, I know that uh, the Cardinals have a very right-handed lineup already, so there's some cover level in that. But, I, you know, the fact that Dansby's a right-handed hitter, I think that makes him not a perfect fit. You know, we'll see. All righty. That's it for Bleacher Tweets. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets while you're watching Game 5 of Yankees-Guardians tonight. Thanks, everyone. That's it for today. My thanks to Tim, Sarah, Ryan, our video producer, Adi Khan, Sarah, and Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.